Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that today we're going to be learning quite a bit about recruiting, quite a bit about AI and machine learning and all of that good stuff. So I guess without further ado, I want to welcome our guest today, Ian Siegel. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So how was, how was life being born and raised, in, obviously in the States, but raised in Los Angeles? Life is great. And... Building a business in LA has also proven to be great. That's amazing. So, so tell me about you know growing up. I guess um, you know you you did study sociology at Oberlin College, but but I guess how how did you develop like the love for for tech for technology? Well, I I had a non traditional path to technology. I grew up in LA, and I actually grew up in Hollywood literally on the mountain where that big Hollywood sign resigns and maybe because of where I grew up, but my original idea of what I wanted to do with my life was to write movies. So, uh, I went to college and I came back to LA and went to work for a production studio on Warner brothers lot, very famous production studio. And within a year learned to hate Hollywood so much that I took the first job I could get which happened to be at Warner Brothers Online, which was the technical division that they'd spun up. And that's how I found myself in tech. Wow. So do you say that, uh, would you say that, I, I think that entrepreneurship storytelling is is critical. So would you say that, for, and that's, you know, for either raising money or for getting top tier talent. So this experience, for example, that you had in movies and, and the love that you had for movies, do you think that that kind of like kicked in the high gear, the storytelling side of things? I mean, it was definitely when I look back over my career, one of my secret superpowers, which is uh, I understood from an early phase in my career how to build a narrative and really telling stories uh, is frequently used to sell something. So it's how to allow others to see something the way you see it and become excited about it or get infected with your enthusiasm for it. And so certainly I think storytelling is a key capability for startups who want to succeed. Got it. So, I mean, before you went at it on your own, right, as, um, as the founder of Ship Recruiter, I'd like to kind of like 
just touch very briefly on on what you've learned and and also what you did because you bounced quite a bit, you know, in in multiple companies. I mean, Ticketmasters, Stamps.com, Rent.com, Pictage.com. So, so I guess you know, it seems that product was like a big thing, like one one of the things that you were really very much involved. So. So what did you learn in each one of these places? Like if you had to take, you know, if you if we had to go like one by one and you just name like one lesson that you learned, you know, let's let's do that. Ticketmasters, what was the lesson that you learned? <laughs> well, at, at Ticketmaster, I uh I learned to appreciate my value on the market is how I'd say it. Uh in that I had I came in as the most junior person in the office and then very quickly I was doing the same work as the most senior people in the office, but still getting paid as the most junior person. So that was the first time I would say I had the courage to look, to pick my head up and look around and say, Hey, I'm not getting paid fairly. Let's go find another job. So I think the lesson I learned there was to uh, value myself. And then I went to city search. I was one of the earliest employees there. I helped them launch the first market that they ever launched. It was a fantastic experience, but I had sold myself in as an engineer and I was obviously, I didn't have a computer science degree. It was just quick at picking things up. And so I was sort of faking it until I made it, until I made it. And then ironically, uh, maybe because of the storytelling background, but people really liked me and City Search was a challenged place from finding a CTO. So they went through four CTOs while I was there. The last one lasted less than three days before he walked out and said, life's too short. And then sort of like a battlefield promotion, they, on an interim basis, asked me to step in and take over the team. I think I was 22 and I was suddenly managing a team of 40 engineers, all of whom were probably in their 30s. And I was so out of my depth and I didn't know how to do the job. I'd never managed anybody before. I felt completely unqualified. I felt like a total imposter. And the literally what I would do every day is I would just go to the team and say, what do you want me to do today? And whatever they told me to do, that's exactly what I did. And after two months of doing this, I went to the leadership of the tech team and I said, listen, I just want to apologize that I'm so terrible at this job. And they were like, what are you talking about? You're the best technology leader we ever had here. You listen. And that really stuck with me. So listening has become one of my other key areas of focus, it, regardless of what level I was at. Every job I've done and every room I'm in, I'm always practicing listening. So that, wow. was, the, that was the city That's search lesson. Let, let me cut you right there. How, how do you define being effective at listening? I've, I, I, I think, uh, you know, m most people listen to talk. Like what they really do is they listen until something triggers in their brain. They figure out what they want to sort of tennis back, tennis racket back to their uh, person they're participating in a conversation with. And what I really practice from a very early point is uh, fully digesting what the person across from me was saying before I fully formulated a response to what they were saying. And I give this advice all the time to people in my organization, which is practice the two-second rule, which is wait two seconds when someone finishes speaking before you respond. Not only will it make you seem more thoughtful, but it will force you to be more thoughtful because it will force you to fully process whatever it is that they said to you. Wow, that's a big one. That's a big one. So, so let's let's continue. So then, so then, what happened after you learned the art of listening? The art of listening. So now I'm trapped as a technology leader, and I'm getting <laughs> recruited by companies far and wide. Famous companies are recruiting me to be a, a, a technology leader, and I wind up at Stamps.com. Again, a very early stage employee, 
built uh, an entire, basically, uh, front-end web organization for them, mostly technologists. So again, I'm building and running technology teams, even though I don't have a computer science degree or experience managing them. And that went extremely well. And I think, you know, what I really learned there, uh, I think the most interesting lesson I learned there, I learned many lessons, but the most interesting one was we were working with the post office, stamps.com let you post uh, print postage from your printer. That was their whole business model. And it was a multi-month certification process from the U.S. Postal Office to make it legal. And we were basically in a death march. I've never been at a job like this. It went on for a solid four months where nobody left the office, seven days a week, no holidays, no breaks. And we had to provide perks to our employees. And we offered everything. We were offering money. We were offering laundry services. We were offering meals. And uh, what I learned in that period was what really motivates and incentivizes people. So number one, having a common mission, but number two, if you really want people to appreciate something, make it tangible. Uh, back then, one of the things we did is we gave everyone a $300 device called a TiVo, which was the first sort of set top box that let you record TV shows. And I, I've never seen such gratitude from an employee base for anything. I mean, this was the cheapest possible perk we could give them. And yet they were so grateful. They thought it was such a thoughtful gift. Uh, and so I've really, that's really stuck with me. And one of the things I do now is when I talk to employees who work for me, I always say like, list the things you like the best about working here. What perks do you value the most? And over and over again, it's things like the TiVo. It's like, I love that you guys serve breakfast and encourage us to sit down together and talk to each other. Stuff like that's that right. means so much more than a little bit more money. Yeah, I mean, people are all, all these all these big companies. They're they're losing the 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 human component, and culture is 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 people. That's right. Yeah, I love it. So, what was the next lesson and the next? Uh, the next, the next. Guy. So then I'm I'm uh, I'm leaving Stamps.com and I go to a company called Rent.com, where again I'm hired as the head of technology. And at this point, <laughs> I've got like a blue chip, gold plated resume. And people think it's incredibly impressive that I've now worked at three companies, uh, two of which IPO'd, one of which sold for hundreds of millions of dollars as a head of technology. And there I actually started to feel confident as a head of technology, though still terribly miscast. That was not my core skill set. Um, but what I learned there is that uh, regardless of the role you play at rent more than at any company previously, I started to get heavily involved in the product. Uh, and that was where my real passion lay. And I knew there that like, Hey, once you find the thing you love to do, you have the power to craft your reality. So I knew I was never going to take another technology job again. It's really funny because when I was leaving rent.com, we sold it to eBay for $435 million. And when I was leaving, I was getting recruited and I'm not kidding. I, Facebook was calling me and saying like, will you come be a VP of engineering? And I was like, I will never wow. run an engineering team again. <laughs> Facebook wasn't Facebook back then. I probably should have taken that job. But I get, yeah, that's like, that's the level of calls I was getting because I was this famous head of technology now for three <laughs> companies in a row. But I took a job at a company called Pictage where I would get the opportunity to run multiple teams and do the thing I loved, which was product. So, okay. so, then, so then product. So, so now it was like, from engineering and tech, now it's product. So product and product market fit. Um, what what did you understand about product market, market fit, like really focusing and, and nailing it on, on product so much now? Yeah, I from like the first job I did, 
I and and again, maybe it goes back to the writing movies and having to create a log line for a movie. But I really felt like uh, there was a fundamental truth at these startups, which is every one of these businesses only sold one thing. No matter how many things they said they sold, they were really only capable of getting famous for one thing. And, you know, the example I will give people today is like, what does Google do? And everybody says, oh, Google's a search company. And it's like, yeah, it's a search company. And it's also like the biggest mapping company and the biggest email company in the world. But nobody really thinks of them that way. They think of them as a search company. And so with product, it was really trying to find one sentence differentiation that you could own the mind share of within society or within your customer base. And I felt like that was the key to my success over and over again with products, which is just having that understanding that you're, you've got to pick something to be the absolute best at. And then you really just want to say it over and over and over again in as many places as you can so that you really own the mindshare around it. Got it, got it, got it. So then, so then let's talk about, and, and I love the fact that you say that every company is, is just viewed for one thing. And, you know, sometimes, you know, like we forget about that, especially when you're an operator and building stuff. Uh, but I guess once, you know, you were, I mean, and you did product, you know, for my life as well. I want to, I want to go just right into it. Like at what point do you realize maybe it was, you know, during my life, which was your, your most immediate gig before you launched your own business. What happened that, you know, all of a sudden you came up with, with the idea of ZipRecruiter? What was that process like? Yeah, I had the idea for ZipRecruiter all the way back when I was working at Stamps.com. Uh, the, the nature of these startups is that the HR departments are tiny and frequently aren't able to do the recruiting for you. So I was literally posting my own jobs uh, when I was recruiting. And when I got to Pictage, I was managing uh, product marketing operations. And I, so I had all I was constantly recruiting. And to post a single job, it was like, where are you going to post it? I'm going to put it on Monster. I'm going to put it on Hot Jobs. I'm going to put it on Dice. I'm going to put it on Craigslist. I mean, there were so many places to post the same job and then so many different mechanisms by which the candidates were coming in that I personally felt this acute pain point over and over again at job after job. And so I had the idea for a while and I was actually going to go build ZipRecruiter when I went to my life, but my life was the one time in my life I'd say that I... I took the paycheck. They offered me so much money I couldn't walk away. And so I deferred building my startup for a little while to go work at my life. But then I realized it just wasn't where my passion lay. And so I finally worked up the courage, built my startup and left. So then, so then what was, uh, so you had the idea, you know, back then, and it was definitely incubating in the background. So what was that day when, when you made the decision that it was time to, to go at it and, and start doing your own thing? We, uh, we built, so I was working in my life and, uh, ZipRecruiter was something that I had recruited three co-founders to build with me on the side of our full-time jobs. And it was kind of a hobby project. We're like, oh, this would be like a great magic button if it existed where you could push a button and then a job you wanted to post would go to all job sites. And then all the candidates from all those sites would just come into one easy to review list. So we were sort of cavalier in the way that we approached it. We're like, all right, we'll build it and then we'll see if anybody wants it. And the first day we launched ZipRecruiter, I put 50 bucks into Google AdWords and we got 12 customers for 50 bucks. <laughs> I was like, it's one of those rare cases where you have immediate product market fit. It's almost like the customers were at the gates banging on them, waiting for us to open the doors. And I quit the same day. I just said, okay, done. 
I'm taking, I'm doing it. I'm do wow. my startup. And then how, how did you meet, how did you meet because your co-founders, Joe Ward and Willis, how did you meet them? Uh, we had all worked together at past companies, some of us at multiple companies together. So we were really familiar with each other. Funny enough, it was actually just uh, Will, Ward, and I to start. And then Joe had been living with his girlfriend in a foreign country, came back to the U.S. and was homeless. And he, he asked me if I had a spare room. And I said, you can live in my converted back house slash garage, but you have to work on my startup for free. And he said, I'll take that deal. And that is how Joe became the fourth co-founder. I love it. I love it. I love it. So then, so then what, what did each one of you guys bring to the table to make it so magical? In a way, we were the ideal startup team in that uh, Ward is an elite front-end developer and designer. He's probably the best designer I've ever worked with. And then Will and Joe are both elite engineers. But more important, and I was a, a generalist who had done product, marketing, operations. Obviously, I'd run tech teams. And so we kind of all had natural roles. There wasn't any argument about who was going to be the CEO. Being back then, I just remember it being kind of like a joke. They're like, hey, you're the CEO. Go get us an insurance plan. <laughs> you know, it was like, I got all the work nobody else wanted to do. Right. Uh, but we were like a Navy SEAL, ideally constructed startup team, though none of us appreciated it at the time. You know, I sort of opportunistically picked up Joe when he was homeless. That's how we got, you know, like we weren't thinking like, ah, we've really cracked the code here. We've built an awesome startup team. We're just like, yeah, we're a group of guys who like each other. Let's try to build something. Right, right. So then, so then you guys finally get together and did all of you give the notice at the same time or, or was it like more like a gradual process? I was the first one to quit. Joe was obviously unemployed and living in my garage. And so the two of us were working and I, you know, I tell the story, I say I had, I was making a lot of money when I quit my job and yeah. it's just me and Joe in my house. And many days I'm, I'm like in my pajamas all day, just working at my kitchen table where we were building this. We bootstrapped for the first four and a half years that we were in business. And I remember I looked at my wife about, it was a, probably about a year in. I'm still at the kitchen table. And I looked at her and I said, Hey, listen, I just want you to know, I know we may not be able to keep this house. I know our kids may not be able to go to the private schools they're in, but, uh, this is my bliss. And I just want to tell you how grateful I am and how much I love you for supporting me as I pursue this. And she looked me dead in the eye and she went, how long? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> she said, how long before we call this a failure? And I said, give me two years, two years. If we're not making enough money that we keep the house and the kids go to private schools, then uh, I'll consider going back and getting a job. So, Because how many kids did you have? I had two kids. One was in school and one was still sort of in preschool, but they, they, were, they were very young. And we were, yeah. So then what were, what were some of the troubles or I would say, you know, maybe like hurdles that you were encountering, let's say during that one year and a half where you were in your kitchen and, you know, I'm sure it kind of like felt a little bit lonely too, because you were used to working with other people. So what, what was that experience? Like what a, what a change for you? Yeah. I mean, I went from managing a team of, I think I had, I think it had over a hundred people at whatever the last job I'd had at my life and at Pictage, I was managing more than a hundred and suddenly it was just me and Joe all day every day. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, every customer was precious and we were adding customers fast, but that meant also that the support demands on our team were high. Uh, these customers needed a lot of handholding, a lot of explanation. None of them were experts at writing job descriptions. Many of them, uh, had questions. 
I, I would take uh, basically all the customer support phone calls and emails that came in. And we are on the West Coast, which meant that I would be getting up at 5 a.m. to start answering calls and emails that were coming in from the East Coast. And then I would be staying up till 11 p.m. at night to deal with the night owls on the West Coast. And it was just rinse and repeat. And this went on for a year. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever worked that hard over an ex- that length of time before. And because we were bootstrapping, you know, it never even really occurred to me like, hey, we should be hiring a bunch of people. We should be getting offices. You know, it was just sort of happening really fast. It was to some degree overwhelming. Uh, yeah. And I kind of got lost in it. And I'll never forget the, the first hire we ever made, a wonderful woman named Ingrid. And this was a year and a half in. And I, we hired her to be our first customer support rep. And the day she started was the day my life got perfect, where suddenly I had copious free time. I wasn't working weekends or late into the evening anymore. I was spending time with my family. It was the greatest period of my life that I remember. And two weeks after we hired her, Ingrid came in my office and said, I'm quitting. I was like, what? You can't quit. Why are you quitting? And she's like, this is bad shitty. And I can't work seven days a week from five to 11. I was like, okay, well, how do we solve that problem? And she said, how about we put office hours up? And I was like, done. We had office hours on the site within five minutes of that conversation. And it's an example. I was like, I tell that story to all new employees. I'm like, listen, you can affect change here. You have agency. If you see something wrong, tell us about it. We'll fix it. So Ingrid, I'm delighted to say is still here. She's still here, still working with us. Wow. Wow. What a, what a great uh, testament as well for, for your guys' culture. No. So, so I want to ask you here, um, what was the um because you were talking about you know doing the the google ads to to capture some people at 12 bucks you know that, that led to like over 50 bucks but i guess the um what ended up being the the business model because you were at it then for like a year and a half and then when you started building up the company what what was what was that business model i mean fundamentally we're we started as a SaaS business and instead of charging employers on a per post basis which is how all job boards had worked before us we said we'll charge you a subscription And the reason we can do that is because we gave them job slots where you could rotate jobs through. So if you put a job up and it didn't work, you could change the job and try again. And then also we're the system, we're the applicant tracking system that they use when the candidates come in to vet the candidates and collaborate with teammates to decide who to hire and who to reject. So, and that meant that we had recurring revenue, which allowed us to grow pretty fast. I mean, we bootstrapped for four and a half years and we were doing north of 50 million in revenue before we raised our first round, our first series A, which was 63 million bucks. So we obviously, wow. we, we did pretty well. So how were, how were you growing the revenue? Obviously we're not going to go into details because, because of uh, potential confidentiality here, but at least before you guys started the hyper growth path with, with VCs and you were bootstrapped, how was that revenue growing? Well, I mean, it's, I think no secret that ZipRecruiter does a fair amount of advertising and we, we were doing that advertising before we raised the VC money. So we were in TV and radio and uh, a bunch of other channels and everyone, it's really interesting because conventional wisdom was that the market we were going after, which was SMBs, uh, couldn't be reached through conventional means. And effectively, all of the major players in the job market you'd heard of before us, whether it was Monster or Career Builder or staffing firms or VC backed startups, they all focused on effectively of the 6 million businesses in the US, the top 1 million that represent about half the jobs in the US. And we were going after the other 5 million. So when we started doing all this advertising, everyone was just like, they're dead. They're going to be out of business in a year. They're spending all their money. 
And they basically gave us all of these channels with almost an exclusive in these channels. And it worked like gangbusters. I mean, we were just tearing up market share. And then you never get to rabbit for very long is what I learned, which is like the big guys very quickly woke up and we're like, Hey, we can't, they're not dying. <laughs> Why aren't they dying? And then suddenly, if you turn on the radio or you open your mailbox, you will see that every job company in the world is now advertising on all the same channels we are. So wow, and and marketplaces are are typically tough um, because you know on something like this, you had the 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 companies you know offering jobs, the people seeking jobs. So so how did you go about the chicken and the egg problem, especially you know being you know the, the supply and demand problem, but especially being you know bootstrapped. Well, uh, we had an insight early on, which is every company that had built a job company before us, uh, they focused on getting job seekers first, and then they sold them to employers. And so I looked around and I said, hey, why don't we take the opposite strategy? We'll go aggregate the employers, and then we'll treat all these different sites that have job seekers like a commodity, and we'll just buy from them. That's how we started. It's a very interesting tactic I pursued because we were growing so fast that um, literally uh, every job board we distributed jobs to every month for the first two years, they would call me and raise our price every month. They'd be like, eh, you can't keep the old deal. You're, you're growing too fast. We need more money from you. And so I, I got to the point where I dreaded the calls from our partners because just imagine you're working with a hundred sites. Most of them want to raise every month what that feels like. And then this funny thing happened a couple years in, which is I still got the calls, but almost overnight, all the calls became, hey, what can I do to make sure you're happy and keep your business? Because they had ladder stepped us up into becoming one of their biggest buyers, if not their biggest buyer. And I was like, what you can do is you can give me a discount. And so suddenly we started to build a moat around our business by using our size and leverage to get preferential deals. But it was a painful two-year process to get there, let me assure you. I hear you. I hear you. So, so at what point would you say that your that your wife felt it was okay to continue going? <laughs> we we did really well. I mean, financially, financially, we like did well. Yeah, that she was yeah. like, okay, you know, I think this is going into somewhere. You know, uh, it was. You know, the first I would say the first two years were thin, and then, but we were just building an ever larger customer base. And the beautiful thing about a recurring revenue model is that it just, uh, the revenue predictably grows. And yeah. I, it was around, it was probably around the third year that uh, I think she woke up to the fact that there was the same amount of money going into our bank account as there used to be. So. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. So, so we know Ian that, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, it's, there's not such thing as a straight line and you have the highs, you have the lows, uh, you know, but, but I want to ask you here, what was, what was a moment for you that perhaps one of your darkest moments, let's say, you know, during, during the journey of this business that led to a really incredible, magical breakthrough? Uh, well, ironically, we bootstrapped for four and a half years and then we raised $63 million in a series A round, which was, I believe the largest in LA history. And we had to make a decision, which was, do we tell people we've raised this money or not? And up to this point, we had practiced what I called security through obscurity, where we never told anyone how well we were doing. 
intentionally because I was really concerned having worked for multiple VC backed businesses and knowing a lot of VCs that there would very quickly be copycats of our business model. People realized how lucrative it was. But at that moment, a lot of, um, there were a lot of internal advocates for sharing publicly that we had raised this money and sort of beating our chest because they said it would help with recruiting. And I was swayed by that argument, but the week after we were in the LA times and a bunch of other newspapers announced and TechCrunch announcing the fundraise was probably the worst week of my career at ZipRecruiter because not only did a legion of partners call me up and say, you damn liar, you've been saying you're four guys in a garage, you're bigger than we are, <laughs> uh, and then try to renegotiate their deals with me on the spot. But our largest partner, who was our biggest source of traffic, fired us immediately, circled us, put crosshairs on us and said, you're our number one competitor. And so overnight, the fundamental uh, match, the sort of economics of our business changed and our access to job seeker traffic changed. And in the spirit of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, it compelled us to start focusing on the other half of our marketplace and with the mantra of never again, we're never again gonna be in a situation where other companies have the power to limit the amount of traffic we get. And that's when we started to really focus on building an excellent job seeker product to go with our excellent employer product. That's when we made a major investment in mobile, which turned out to be a prescient uh, decision because back then about 25% of job seeking happened on a mobile device or tablet. Today, just a few short years later, it's 75%. So being the best at mobile turned out to be one of our better long-term decisions. And it, you know, I, I, I'll never regret because of the many positive things that came out of it, the decision to announce publicly, but it strategically definitely was a dumb decision. And, and why 63 million? I mean, it's not just like one of the largest in LA, probably one of the largest in US history when, when it comes yeah. to Series A's. I mean, why 63 million at a Series A? Why not raising you know just a tiny bit and then maybe a little bit more and continue on the pace of the different financing cycles? Yeah, we had a tiger by its tail, and uh, there were so many things that we wanted to do simultaneously, uh, and whether it was to be to ramp advertising in channels where we still had basically free reign and were operating like we had exclusives, because we were the only ones in it, uh, a particular desire to invest heavily and rapidly in technology, there was a lot going on technologically in our business. It was right around this point that, um, you know, a funny challenge happened to our business because after we survived the companies and partnerships dissolving and losing some traffic right after we fundraised, by focusing on it, we immediately built a great job seeker product and job seeker traffic skyrocketed. And then we started delivering not 30 candidates per job, but 40, 50, 100. And it turned out... <laughs> That when you get to the that level of candidate delivery, it actually upsets employers. So our strategy of more as being our our like our our true north turned out to start hurting us. And we had to make a major pivot from more candidates to a laser focus on quality candidates. And the technology that was emerging in machine learning and deep learning, what everyone calls AI, 
uh, it was really hard to find engineers who were good at it. It took a lot of investment to get it up and running and we were right at the early stages of it. And so I knew I needed a large war chest if we were going to really go after what the next iteration of our business was going to be. It was probably the single biggest pivot we had to make as a business, which was shifting from volume to quality. Got it. And, and, and definitely AI and, and machine learning, there's just like so much noise, right? And, and everyone says, oh, I'm doing AI for this or machine learning for this. So I guess you, you were talking about like building a big war chest. I guess the, um, one of the biggest probably expenses there or the biggest cost was the, the scientists, not the data scientists. Yeah, we have over 250 engineers that work at Zip now. We have 60 in an R&D center in Israel that are doing some of the most advanced algorithmic work in the world. Uh, we have a whole other search team in LA. I mean, we are, we're pursuing this and investing tens of millions of dollars into it. And it's exactly what you said is exactly right. Like if you really want to do this work, it's not easy to find the people, but more importantly, it takes an extraordinary quantity of data to, to actually train these algorithms. Yeah. There are very few companies in the world that have enough data to do it. It's an interesting time because there's an inflection in startups' ability to disrupt incumbents. The incumbents actually have the advantage because they have the data from which to train these algorithms. It's not just in the recruiting category. It's in many categories. Got it. And just to close the gap on the, on the fundraising, how much capital have you guys raised to date that is uh, publicly announced? Uh, it's over $200 million at this point. We did a series B last year. So. I saw 100, 156 million, right? Correct. Really nice. And would you say that in your guys' case, I mean, typically the people that, that I have on the show, you know, is a, is people that had to go there and fight, you know, to get, you know, their round, you know, because every company, you know, like the bootstrapping road is, is not the, the normal, right? When, when you're thinking about hyper growth companies, it's like, you got to get out there, you got to fight, you got to build a funnel and, and start pounding doors to get some financing. But in your case, I mean, we're talking about doing tens of millions already in revenue. Uh, were you literally having people waiting for you at, at your office when you were arriving, you know, on Mondays at, at 9 a.m. or what was the deal? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were, the, if you, if you want to feel really good about yourself, successfully bootstrap a company <laughs> because it is like having the most leverage you can possibly have in a negotiation because you are buried in suitors. So our, our series A was it was relatively easy to find uh you know quality investors who wanted to participate because we were you know the untouched company we'd never had a dollar put in and we were doing so well i still was an idiot i mean i could have i i it's so it's very hard to be good at something in life until you've done it a few times so that was the first round of funding i'd ever raised for any business i was at and obviously i made a bunch of mistakes and even then, I still have great partners and investors. They've been tremendous all the way through. But, you know, if I had a piece of advice for uh, anyone out there thinking about raising money, which is find a quality advisor. I mean, that will, it will change your life to just have one smart person who has the wisdom and experience to sit on your shoulder and tell you to, how to avoid the pitfalls in that process. Got it. Got it. No, and, and, and that's a really good one. That's why I actually, you know, build my next business, which is Panthera Advisors. But anyway, that's a different conversation. So, so why, why did you um, decide to uh, get institutional venture partners as the 
you know, lead investor for, for this first round? What did they have that nobody else had? Uh, so I will, I, I had a really interesting experience. I got to talk to some of the best investors in the world and I was, uh, surprised by the level of input many of them wanted to give me on the business that was doing so well, the changes they were outlining as thinking were good ideas. The, uh, I would say the demeanor of some of the investors I was talking to was one of, they were sort of adopting more of like a mentor coach, uh, role with me as opposed to a partner role with me. And I had been building startups for 17 years before I built ZipRecruiter. So, uh, IVP came to me and they really, from the very beginning, they were like, how can I be helpful? What would be helpful? They listened. That's what I would say. They listened really well. And everything I said, they wrote down and followed up on. I was so impressed because I think the number one thing I look for from a VC is make my job easier. And the only way you're going to make my job easier is by listening to me. It's not by talking to at me. So, and by the way, a lot of the advice that many of those VCs gave me, I wound up taking and it was greatly beneficial to the business. So in no way am I denigrating their advice or their wisdom. I'm just saying it was the wrong way to start a conversation. Got it. Got it. And I think that the, um, the listening is, it just keeps popping up in, and and I, I really love that, that part. Yeah. I think that listening is everything. And that's why we have Two two ears and one mouth, right? So um, that's for sure. So I guess the um, talking a I'm little bit about that line, I love that line. I'm stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, let me ask you this. So the um, so in a world, I mean, we're talking about now, like putting in, you know, machine learning, AI. I mean, this is really incredible that now, you know, with just like pushing a couple of buttons, you know, you you got what you need. So so in a in a world where the vision of SIP Recruiter is fully realized, what does that world look like? I mean, the first thing you got to realize is uh, whether it's a Boolean algorithm or a heuristic-based algorithm, which is what engineers have used in the recruiting space, and I'll speak to the recruiting space specifically uh, for all time, uh, the first version of an algorithm, a uh, machine learning algorithm that we used, produced satisfaction as measured by a thumbs up from the employer when a candidate applied at a 100% improvement over... <laughs> what the previous satisfaction level was. And the most recent version of our algorithms is 300% better. And what I say is the dawn of robot recruiting is here. Like no human will ever be as good again as these algorithms. And it's because the algorithms are capable of developing insights over large data sets that no human would. And I'll give you a really concrete example, which is something like uh, if you post a product manager job in New York, the algorithm at ZipRecruiter is smart enough to know that that job should be shown to product manager candidates in LA because those candidates in LA will frequently move to New York for that job. Uh, similarly, the algorithm is smart enough when you post a customer service job in New York not to show that job to customer service reps in LA because they won't move to New York to take that job. That's the kind of rule you would never have put into your heuristic algorithmic approach. And so... It's not when we say that the AI learns and it gets smarter over time, uh, there are numerous examples I could point to of little insights like that, that the algorithm develops that you don't, 
know that it's doing unless you really search for it and you don't tell it to do. This is software that studies a crowd, looks for patterns and exploits them. And that's going to be true in across a wide variety of industries. However, uh, the number one question I get asked is, does that mean that uh, the robots are going to replace humans and we're not going to need humans to do recruiting anymore? And let me make this really simple. That will never be true. And there's a really easy answer why, which is whoever has received a call from the recruiter in the past has usually taken that call. And why do they take that call and hear out a recruiter when they're not looking for a job and they're happy at their current job? It's because it's intoxicating. It's like getting picked up at a bar. We're human beings and we are, we are uh, susceptible to praise and we are susceptible to being wanted. And so it's always going to be more effective for a human to call a human than for an algorithm to send you an email or a text with a job. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, and you've seen a lot, you know, in, when it comes to, to recruiting. So for the folks that are listening that, you know, because I think that building a business is all about surrounding yourself by the right people and especially during the early stages. But I guess for those that are thinking about building up the team and, and being able to ask the right questions, let's say in an interview, what would be the three most important questions that they should ask and why? Uh, well, I will tell you the questions that I ask in an interview, and I think we have an elite team here. So hopefully these will be as useful for you as they were for me. But the, uh, the first question that I ask everyone is, uh, tell me about the last company you worked for, uh, what made them special and how they were different from all the competition in your space. And it's surprising how few people can answer that question. The number of people who are just heads down in a job, just, you know, doing a specific role, but not looking around at what the company overall is trying to achieve or how their competition is competing against them is surprisingly high. And so I look for people who are strategic. Number one, good answers to that question are a way to elicit it. Uh, number two, which is, I like to ask people like, tell me about a time when you failed and then a lot of people trying to turn like a positive situation into negative. But the most important thing I'm listening to in that answer is what did they learn? Like how reflective were they were about the failure? And uh, that turns out to be one of the most telling questions that you can ask. And then the third thing is uh, I try to engage them at some point, either at the beginning or at the end. I'm like, tell me what you like to do and find something they're passionate about. And then ask them to tell me about the thing in detail that they are passionate about to see how infectious they can be. What is their enthusiasm level? How vulnerable are they willing to be? Are they willing to geek out with me on something? Because it, it, for me, it's the people who are passionate and strategic and, and thoughtful that turn out to be the best employees. Got it. Really cool. And is there like one thing or like a constant pattern that you see that is like the always the same red flag that is like so quickly, you know, that appears during interviews that you're like, okay, next. I mean, for me, over and over again, I feel people overweight extroversion in interviews. It's the hardest thing to overlook. There's just some people who are naturally comfortable in a higher pressure situation. That doesn't mean they're great at what they do or they'll be great working with you. And so I always say the three things that matter in an interview are the references, the references, and the references. So do yourself a favor, always check the references. And there's this uh, interesting trend now that that I just it just I just got reminded of is 
how companies now are all about what you're capable of rather than where you studied. Have, have you seen that too? Yeah, I mean, you have uh, 101 months in a row of the economy creating jobs. You've got 3.7% unemployment. You're basically at what we call peak employment in the country. So it's incredibly difficult to find experienced talent right now. It's a job seekers market, not an employer's market. And as a result, employers have had to get very, very honest with themselves about what does this job really take? And so it's less about where you went to school. It's less about the companies you worked for before, and it's more about expertise in a single skill. And whether that be a specific software, whether that be in sales, I mean, there's a lot of different examples now where uh, companies are eliminating all but the most important requirement and everything else becomes a nice to have. Interesting. And I guess uh, for you, I mean, we were talking about, you know, recruiting and making decisions on who you bring on board and stuff like that. But I guess more on the on the decision side of things, because uh, the other day, for example, I heard someone saying that life and, and business is like a game. You know, every choice that you make, you know, has an impact. Uh, but obviously there is some um, very important choices that can determine, you know, like whether you're going to survive or you're going to die. So I guess during those times where you're making those really critical decisions, What's the, um, what's the process? Uh, what does the process look like for you? I mean, I, I spend a lot of time, uh, talking to people internally about the difference between reversible and irreversible decisions. I stole this from Jeff Bezos. Clearly I was not the original author of this, but I think it really rings true for me. There's very few decisions you make that are irreversible. So uh, the most important things I look for are uh, frameworks around decisions such that we know whether or not something's working or not working and whether that's a hire or a new product that we're launching. There's, a, there's an important skill that if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to develop and it is incredibly difficult to develop but it's really what separates the winners from the losers, in my opinion. It's very simple. Can you ignore sunk cost? Whether it's a hire or an investment in a new product strategy. I'll tell you the hardest day I had at ZipRecruiter, the hardest single day, we'd spent a year working on a product and 30 people for one year had fully committed to it. And at the end of a year, we killed it. Toughest decision I had at ZipRecruiter, but it wasn't working. I mean, and the thing is, you can always find bright spots or soft signal that there's that there's a possibility it'll start working. But after a year, if something's not working in a year, kill it. Got it. Got it. And one question that I always um, ask folks that I have on the show, Ian, is, uh, I mean, you've been at it now for over eight years, you know, hyper growth, you know, to the next level uh, with uh, with SIP Recruiter. But I guess if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, right, before you were, you know, let's say you were about to, to give your notice and to go to your kitchen table with your co-founder, I guess what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching the business and why would that be? Uh, I think what I would, so when we launched the business, I was really focused on it being a lifestyle business. You know, my fantasy back then was we'd have a 12 person office on the beach with a dog and everyone would hang out together and it'd be a very family feel to it. And I, it took me a really long time to let go of that. And I think the advice I would give myself, uh, is 
it's very rare that you find something with the potential to be big. When you do, have the courage to go after it and don't settle for anything less than big success. And I think, you know, arguably we should have raised money faster. We could have pressed our advantage harder. And it was my reluctance to let go of my original vision that uh, slowed down our appetite for some period of time when we could have grown a lot faster than we did. Uh, and, you know, there's a great talk I heard. I can't remember who gave the talk, but he said, uh, a lot of startups quit one problem from success. And I, that always really, that sticks with me because uh, the, the nature of building these companies is that uh, any modest success that you achieve is so rare that everybody celebrates you for it. And I think the thing that takes real courage is not building a business to sell it, but building a business that gets so big that, you know, it will, it will live beyond you. And, uh, so for me, ZipRecruiter is going to be one of those businesses. It's going to be around for a long, long time. And I wish I'd had the vision to see it sooner. I love it. But just out of curiosity, did you finally get the dog? I never got the dog. <laughs> I know, right? Got it, got it, got it. So, so I mean, I have two, and they're very loud, and they bark a lot, and, you know, they told me to get them, so now I'm the one that, you know, picks up the poop in, in Manhattan when it's, like, snowing like crazy at 5 a.m. So, so you, lucky you, lucky you, Ian. Yeah. So I, maybe, I, I'm glad I don't, maybe I'm lucky I don't have the dog. Yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So, Ian, I guess the um, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You can just... Uh, write me. I'm Ian at ZipRecruiter. Easy to reach. Amazing. And any any social media handles that they could follow you on? Yep. I am on Twitter. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm everywhere. Amazing. Well, Ian, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.